So uh, last time we met Brian, it was incredibly hot in this room. But in the in the time since our last meeting, there's a little chill in the air. And Ooh. and I, and today was a milestone for me. Today I had my first cup of pumpkin spice creamer in my coffee. Oh uh, wow! Starting actually, I was going to say early, but I guess it's about time. Huh? It's about it's about that time. Yeah, it's about that time. It's available in the stores, so hey, uh, yeah. I'm going to take advantage. Well, I mean, you can also get a Christmas tree at Costco, but that doesn't make it right. So. <laughs> Welcome to episode 463 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Black. Welcome back for another episode. Brian, how are you doing? Oh, oh no, I'm not supposed weeks. to ask you how you're doing. I'm supposed to ask you what, what's on the dock. <laughs> Asking me how I'm doing is opening a can of worms. I fell Marshall. into old habits, There's, there's a lot going on yeah, yeah, right yeah. now. What's on the docket, though? We are going to talk a lot about design. Um, surprise, surprise, we're going to talk about some pixel stuff, some design system stuff, hey. some motion stuff. And then uh, in the sidebar, we're going to talk about sharing work in progress and uh, some of the observations I've had having interviewed now hundreds of design teams and talked with different teams of all sizes, shapes, and figuring out what is causing a mismatch and you know, what managers want designers to do and what designers want to do when it comes to sharing work in progress. So that'll be in the sidebar. Speaking of which, sidebar, sidebar. we have some new very important pixels. Hey. Welcome to the fam. Some new and returning very important pixels. Welcome in. Ophelia Lung, Leo, Yule Albert, Mark Gill, Brighton, Rich Beckett, Tibor, David Mills, Ava Liao, and Shannon Ma. Welcome, welcome. Welcome. I recognize some names in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So everyone coming into the the VIP lounge, be sure to catch this week's sidebar talking about sharing work in progress. If you didn't know, we're a listener-supported podcast. That means that people, just like the aforementioned list of very important pixels, support us on Patreon. And in return, they get access to sweet, sweet bonus content. We call it the sidebar. Sidebar, sidebar. So if you uh, get through this episode and you're just hankering for a little more design to tickle your eardrums, head to patreon.com slash design details where you can get the sidebar and support us for just a dollar a month. Just a buck a month? Just a buck a month. All right. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for supporting the show. Here we go. Marshall, main topic, time. We've got three. So I want to start with a spicy tweet that I had a little while ago. I said, animating interactive elements and productivity software is good for getting likes on Twitter, but bad for creating an enjoyable experience for most of your customers. And of course, it is a very unnuanced, very Twitter-like <laughs> hot take. And uh-huh. I think some people didn't like the tweet. And the reason that I tweeted it was because somebody on Twitter shared like some video prototype of just the most gratuitous animation in like a dashboard interaction. It was like a tooltip where as you moved your mouse around the contents of the tooltip like animated in and out. Incredibly disorienting, really distracting. And the tweet blew the fuck up. It was crazy, like thousands of likes. And I see that kind of stuff. I'm like, there's a huge gap between what is nice eye candy on Twitter and what is actually useful animation design or motion design. more correctly, in tools, in productivity software. You know, maybe as we talk about like 
different kinds of software. There might be a different place, but I'm talking specifically about tools and apps and dashboards and stuff like that. So yeah, I've been trying to figure out a better way to frame this. And I keep coming around to like, there's too much motion. There's probably too little. Like motion is still useful, right? Like in certain things for dropdowns or dialogues or perhaps certain like state transitions, like moving into a success or an error state, things like toasts animating in and out. Like there are times where motion is useful, but there seems to be this boundary where it becomes too much and your software starts to feel goopy. And there's too little where your software feels static or lifeless or too too snappy to the point where like you can easily get disoriented as you click on things. So that's the topic. I would love to hear your your reaction to these ideas since you uh, spend a lot more time thinking about design systems and probably motion design than I do. Yeah, well, I don't know about that, but uh, I, I, I do think about motion design for sure. Um, I hadn't seen this tweet because I don't spend, oh, sorry, post. I hadn't, fuck it. No, I'm still calling it Twitter. It's a tweet. Yeah, it's still Twitter. Yeah, um, I hadn't seen this tweet because I don't spend a whole lot of time on Twitter. But uh, I, it's good to see that you, you know, ratio is good, despite, you know, maybe this conversation, like still <laughs> you didn't get ratio. Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. It's like it's too little feels bad, too much feels worse. So like what, what you know, what's the middle ground? And I think the the place that I always start is like, you know, core journeys. Like what are the what are the main things that people are going to be experiencing? How often are they going to experience those things and then adjust accordingly, right? Like if this is a common thing like a button press, you should take into account that that's the thing that's going to happen probably dozens of times during the course of using your app in a given session. But a major event that only happens once per session or something, like you can put more zhuzh into that, a little bit, a little bit more fancy pants on that stuff. And it might even be appreciated, right? So for every animation, there's all these levers or knobs that you can adjust to. Right? Duration, obviously, is, is one of them. When it happens is another one. It's also like the type of thing that happens, right? Is like how subtle is it? Is it a slight scale change? Is it a slight color change? Is it an opacity change? Like you can you can do lots of different subtle things that still keep the interface alive, especially if you take into account larger animation principles like uh, anticipation, overshoot, and settle. I'm not sure if you're familiar with these terms. I know overshoot and settle. I'm not sure what's anticipation. Antic is the short. It's like antic overshoot and settle. It's like you go the opposite direction of the intended thing. It's like when when you want to jump up, you actually squat down and uh-huh. gather your energy before you jump up. You go to right, a peak right. and then... Oh, I see. Right. I see. Yeah. So then overshoot, obviously, being going past the final resting position that you intend to be and then settle, which is... With a bounce-type animation, sometimes a, a longer portion that can take a while to resolve where you overshoot this way, then overshoot the other yeah. way, and then overshoot, overshoot sli- slightly less each time until you finally settle. I think my rule on bounce and spring animation is you should always use less than you think you should use. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I think that's the other thing, too, is uh, you, you have to use it, right? Don't just design it and go, okay, clap your hands, pat yourself on the back and say, good job. I did such a good 250 milliseconds felt really great. Like, no, 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 no. 
use it a bunch for a long time and until you forget that you're using it and it feels if it feels right then it's cool but if it feels slow if it feels too fast you got to adjust um and the only way to do that is not going into like prototype mode for a couple seconds and like <laughs> seeing what it feels like now you actually have to use it feel it in your hand or like see it on screen at full size full res with actual content to to really feel it i guess that's if you're building something yourself if it's harder to ship stuff then yeah prototype obviously but yeah, you just got to feel it. You got to feel it because because what feels have- good in the moment, like when you're kind of looking at it, like over and over and over and over and over again, might not feel good when you just get it one time out of context, right? Yeah, I think that's the problem with like tweaking animation curves is mm-hmm. you it like uh, you need fresh eyes, maximum tunnel vision. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and that's I think you bring up a good point is the living with it part. There's been many times where I've designed something. And the first few times I use it, I'm like, oh, that was awesome. Mm-hmm. That's really slick. Mm-hmm. And then the 10th time I use it, I'm like, I'm pretty fucking sick of this animation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, usually it's uh, with those sorts of common interface elements, buttons and drop downs and modals, especially modals. God, people over animate the shit out of those. Just like, just mm-hmm. pop it up, man. Just mm-hmm. show it instantly or like 100 milliseconds. I don't know. It can mm-hmm. be super fast. I also wonder if people's eye for motion is getting more refined. I'm like starting to notice the difference between a 100, a 150, and a 200 millisecond animation. We're talking like that's a blink. It's not very much. You can feel it. And you can feel it. Mm -hmm. Do you have like any rules of thumb that you keep in the back of your head as you're like, okay, I got to like pop sheet or dialogue or push something or like we're going to toast Yeah. in terms of speed and curve? Is that? Yeah. So... Duration is something that you can do like at short distances, but anytime you're moving something of a larger size or across a longer distance, like you have to increase your duration. So like I I do like a 200, 250-ish, 300 millisecond time for a lot of things. It's like just long enough that you can track it, but just short enough that you're not waiting for it, right? It's done by the time you realize it happened. And at least for for the things that you see commonly, expanding, collapsing, uh, moving from one simple state to another simple state, large surface changes, like moving into a modal state, like you said, especially if like a dialogue is coming up from off screen or something is coming from off screen, the larger it is, the more weight I expect it to feel. So it should feel a little bit slower, a little heavier, a little um, more dampened, more sluggish. And also it should come to a rest more easily because it has more weight and it should take longer to get there because it's going further, right? But again, these are all like, we're talking about an additional like 50 to 100 milliseconds or something, depending on the distance. Like these are small differences, but to your point, I think you feel those small differences more than you see them. And well, I guess a lot of this depends on your brain's frame rate. Like you might not actually perceive these things, mm-hmm. you know, but I could definitely, because like, yeah, this is the I, a good point. I, I go home to my parents' house at, at Christmas and they've got their TV set to like the, oh. the screen, like the, the frame smoothing thing. Terrible. And I, and I'm Terrible. like, oh, what are you doing? This makes uh, It's a Wonderful Life look like a stage play or like a soap opera. Like, what are you talking so about? I turn it off. I'm like, see, don't you see the difference? Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, so some people might, might not see it. But if your frame rate is high enough on your eyeballs, then you, you will see these. You might actually like physically yeah. see the frames, right? But even if not, like you probably feel it at the very least. Yeah, I've got high frame rate eyeballs. I think playing games also starts to affect that, like a single dropped frame. You can be like, mm-hmm. whoa. Uh, I feel every stutter. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, those are some some handy uh, tips, and I guess let's let's end this little bit calling this uh, a PSA to uh, maybe maybe use a little bit less than you think, mm-hmm. uh, especially in productivity tools. Okay. And another question. Yeah. Unless the point is to be fun. For for example, just as like a little coda, I I downloaded a bunch of the not boring apps and. Uh-huh. Those are like way extra, but that's the whole fucking point. Is like that's everything is a little bit extra. There's a sound and a haptic and an animation to every little thing, and I love it. Right? Yeah. So, know your audience, I guess, is the point there. Yeah, yeah. Or know cool. know thyself, maybe. Is you know, know know what you're trying to provide as a as an app. Anyways, I like know your audience. Like who who is going to be digesting this information? Mm-hmm. Choose the values correctly for that person. Cool. Okay, another question. Let's keep the train going. Yeah. <laughs> this one comes from uh, Joey Perlman. Actually, both questions today are from Joey Perlman <laughs> on GitHub. Thanks yes. for the questions. First one, Marshall, what's the purpose of button sizes? Joey says, button sizes are something I see in every design system, but I've never seen documentation beyond something like our design system has five button sizes from extra small to extra large. <laughs> What's the purpose of button sizes? Are they meant to be used for hierarchy? So big single actions like sign up are larger and more emphasized than smaller things like a button row with multiple options like edit next previous delete. Or are they meant to be used for different breakpoints so you can swap in larger buttons for touch screens and smaller buttons for clickable elements? How do you consider button size options when adding a button to your design? And when do you decide to veer from the default size and instead use a small or large button? When to use the extremes on the scale, like extra small or extra large. Love it. When I first read the title, I thought it was a kind of a silly question. And then I was like, no, this is a great question because should you do it for the role of the button or for the place that it's being displayed or for the input mechanism that you detect? I think there's a lot of nuance here. Yeah. So how do you think about button sizes? Joey nailed it. <laughs> that was, uh, we kind yeah. of just like stopped at the reading of the thing. Yeah, it's like, y- yes, to all of that, kind of. <laughs> at least that's kind of how I've yeah. been thinking about it in general. It's like, yeah, you have different things like sign up. Yeah, a, a, I don't, is there a word for this? F, we call them FSIs, full screen interstitials, like a, a big, hmm. is that the industry term, FSI? Nope, but it is. Now, uh, anyways, <laughs> yeah, a full screen interstitial, basically at a, a modal takeover where there is one goal and one goal only, and it is to move forward with option A or B. And if you really prefer option A to be per, uh, chosen, then you want to use a larger button. You like you want again. Mm-hmm. This is like levers and knobs that you can turn to like you know adjust how much you want to emphasize something. And button size is one of them. In addition to all that, you would hope that like the text is scaling up, the iconography is scaling up proportionally with the button. Um, but uh, yeah, that's exactly what you want to do it for. And and that range is like where you want to fit those things in. Is it in like a button that needs to go into a navigation bar, like at the top of the screen and fit vertically within a 48 or 44 dip bar? Well, it's going to have to be smaller and narrower and the font's going to have to be smaller and, and all uh, the icons are have to be smaller. So yes, to fit into different places, you need to have different size buttons. And then, yes, <laughs> moving on to breakpoints, like, yeah, TV is going to, on average, use the larger end of the button spectrum, like a, a TV app, because it's a 10-foot device. You want these big buttons. Also, large screens like tablet, especially touch screens like tablets, you kind of want to use bigger buttons, but smaller screens like phones or devices like computers that have uh, single pixel cursor selection points uh you can use smaller buttons so like 
yes, yeah, different breakpoints can use but different how you, buttons. How do you think about that when you're implementing the button? Like, I think a good one is if you're designing for web and the website is responsive. Mm-hmm. On a desktop display or a laptop, the button might feel correctly sized, but it's going to feel way too small on a touchscreen. Like a basically like a 32 pixel tall button mm-hmm. feels fine on a desktop interface. Uh-huh. Feels way too small on a touch device. Depends. Is it is it spanning the width? Uh, this is another this is another aspect of it. Is proportionally, if the button is relatively narrow, it can also be relatively short, right? Sure. If you're stretching it to be margin to margin across the width of a mobile screen. It, there's a minimum height of like, yeah, 32 feels like a bar, a ladder rung, right? You want it to feel more chunky. I found that like 36 is the absolute smallest you can get away with, to my eye at least. Would you like swap that value based on touch device or viewport size? Um, or I guess it'd be like pointer type or or viewport size. I mean, a lot of times that, okay, okay. So like in in that spectrum of extra small to extra large, medium should be the default size, right? So 90% of the time you're using medium. Only every once in a while when you need to squeeze a button into a tiny spot or a button needs to be really diminished in size or for whatever reason, you use the smaller end of the spectrum or you really want to emphasize it or there's not much else on screen. You got to fill real estate and need a big fat button, you know, use the upper end of it too. So for the most part, you're sticking on that 36, 40 point button in most cases. And that works across both touch and click devices, in my estimation. When's a case where you would use like an extra small button? Like, okay, sure, you need to squeeze it in somewhere, but then you're making mm-hmm. a trade-off in some dimension from a legibility point of view or from a tap target point of view. I mean, you've seen this, like a done or a save in the top right that's like part of the nav bar. Or... On TikTok, right, like you have a follow button that's really small because like, again, you got to cram it on with a bunch of stuff on screen, right? Um, It could also be like a less high value tap target, like a bunch of tags or something like that, right? You might want to use a smaller button because you have to fit a bunch of them on screen and they're not all like super high tap priority. So you don't want to draw visual attention to them. Uh, is that, uh, have I sated your desire for, for examples? Like, uh, I guess, yeah. I'm just trying to think of more things to throw at Joey here. I, although I feel like Joey did kind of. I think Joey gets it. I think <laughs> covered it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. We're just uh, filling in the gaps between all of all of the things that Joey yeah. said already. Okay. Then let's move on. We have another question from Joey. Mm-hmm. How do you manage margins for type styles in Figma? Joey says, in CSS, all the headings and paragraphs and other text styles are going to be defined with specific top-bottom margins and might even have rules to adapt margin in certain situations. So for example, a final paragraph might get extra margin bottom compared to other paragraphs, or a H2 might have one margin top if it appears directly after an H1, but a different margin top if it appears after a paragraph. Figma doesn't really have a way to do any of this. So what do you do? Do you even document this in Figma? I can kind of jump in on this one. Yeah. Please. No, I do not document this in Figma. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, We just shipped a a note feature on Campsite. It's kind of like writing a document. Um, Mm -hmm. So people are using it to share like blog posts, announcements, that kind of content. And it has been whack-a-mole with, well, what if these two elements appear side by side? What if these two elements appear side by side 
within a block quote and that block quote is next to an image. It's just mm. a zillion rules where I, I've actually found that applying consistent spacing between elements doesn't feel good. Mm-mm. You actually want, there has to be like a little bit of a rhythm to it. And a lot of times that just means defining these one-off rules. Like, I don't know if you have a list followed by paragraph followed by a list and the list has an indented list within it. Like you just start to nudge things around by a pixel here, a pixel there to make it feel right. Even though you've like broken vertical consistency, headings mess it all up and then starting and and trailing nodes, right? Like if your document starts with an H1 versus a paragraph and if it ends with an H1 or a paragraph, I think you just apply different rules. So anyways, my answer is, don't try and keep track of this in Figma. Like keep track of this in code and have mm. a shit ton of sample text. I guess you could use some sort of design system-y tool like a storybook to basically create all these weird permutations and combinations of ways that users might create this type of content. Mm-hmm. Just eyeball it and see what feels right. And it's going to be a lot of these little specific weird one-off rules. We keep discovering them too. Like today we discovered some issues with block quotes that contain indented lists it's like i don't know who would like think to test that but you you just discover them over time through people writing all sorts of stuff the one thing though i am looking forward to is there is a css change i think proposed or in progress that will trim white space above the top and bottom of words which figma has already implemented it you can do that in figma and Mm -hmm. it makes finding vertical rhythm a billion times easier and just like laying out a design where the text like is correctly spaced from the nearest element. Mm -hmm. Not really well supported in CSS right now, but I think we're heading that direction. And I got to imagine once that's like broadly supported across browsers that every design system person who works on the web is just going to immediately want to switch to that. Just makes Mm -hmm. your life so much easier. For everything, for like positioning text relative to buttons and separators and other components. It's just like, I don't want to consider the hidden CSS padding that's accounting for accents and ligatures and descenders and all this kind of stuff that mm-hmm. like might fly off the top and bottom. Like let let the browser figure out exactly how much this specific word needs top and bottom and no more, no less. I think that's the uh, right way to do it. It's Yeah, it's like... How about we just don't clip bounds, right? Like uncheck the clip bounds checkbox on on text fields, right? Like if there's stuff like, you know, yeah, let me measure from baseline to the cap height and everything else. If it falls outside of that, like, cool, display it, but I don't care, you know? That would be nice, huh? That would be Mm -hmm, nice. mm -hmm. Yeah. Not the way CSS works. Anyways, do you have any uh, tips or tricks for managing type styles in Figma, accounting for all the ways that, type might sort of bump up against other components no not not for anything like this like usually i'm just thinking about how type clusters together as like metadata clumps but yeah i mean i've i've always appreciated the aspiration of a baseline grid on on a screen where it's like yeah all the text in the different columns lines up and da 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 like Unless you're making a very text-heavy product, I, I don't see the value in it. Like it's it's more trouble than it's worth, and it probably won't even look all that good. Like it only looks good because everything is text. Once you start getting like containers and buttons and imagery and clusters of metadata and things like that, you, you there's like a different uh, 
gestalt that you want to create with how your eye groups things together than just a baseline grid would provide. So yeah, yeah. it's always, it's always cool to me when someone actually achieves it. Like, Oh wow. Really, really good job on that. It looks great. I can tell, I, I can feel that everything's on the baseline grid, but good golly, I don't want to do it myself. It's a lot of work. Well, wasn't this, this was like the thing that Medium did. Yeah. Medium, back in the day, they wrote really long blog posts about how they specifically laid out their typography and Mm -hmm. they did a lot of custom work to get underlines correct. Uh, All sorts of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so Joey, you might be able to Google around for some of those like Medium typography articles, but look for ones published by the Medium team because I think they did a lot of technical analysis on this. Another resource you could look at is the Tailwind team has a plugin called Typography. So you could just Google Tailwind Typography. And in my opinion, the defaults that they choose are a little bit too spacious. I don't really like them and I've, I've overridden them and they give you ways to override them. But they have, if you dig into the Tailwind Typography source code on GitHub, you can see all of their rules for how different elements should interact when placed next to other specific elements. And that might give you a pretty reasonable starting point. So I would I would dig into those two things. Nice. Maybe we can even uh, dig up some links for the show notes. Links in the show notes. Cool, cool, cool. Cool. Well, that's it for main well, topic. Was, uh, yeah. yeah, three things. That was good. Ran through it real quick. Nice. We, we tend to pontificate, but actually we kept it nice and tight there, Brian. I'm, I'm proud nice of us. Nice and tight. Yeah. Should we do cool things? Let's do cool things. All right. You first. Yeah, usually you go first. I'll go first. Me. Me this time. I am the eldest boy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So I have been trying to take my health more seriously lately. I I just turned 41. I'm old, old man now. And and my body is going to start changing pretty soon, probably. So I should probably start taking care of it. It's like I'm going through puberty all over again. Reverse reverse (laughs) puberty. Yeah, but like everything hurts now. Okay, so one of the things I've been trying to do is improve my hydration, my water intake, drink less carbonated beverages, fewer sodas, and and just more straight up H2O, Brian, just some straight up water. But I like my water real cold, and I like it free of contaminants. I don't know, like, I'm not sure I trust tap water. Brita is cool or whatever, but I got this new water bottle, Brian. And it's a double-walled thermos with a cap on it. It's got a little charger on it. And that charger charges an internal battery, which powers a UV light that shines down into... Jesus Christ, dude. The, You've gone too far. You've gone thermos. too far. And kills okay. all them little critters or whatever. Um, yeah, sure, sure. I, I like to know that my water's clean. But also, the thermos is really fucking good. It keeps cold water cold for like 48 hours or something like that. I forget what it is. I'll have a link wow, in the show good, notes. Yeah. But yeah, 20, I think it was maybe it was 24 hours and 8 hours for hot or something like that. But regardless, it's longer than it takes to drink the full you know, 16 ounces or whatever it is. So. Uh, link in the show notes. This is this is my new daily carry. I keep it with me instead of uh, drinking too much. And, and I guess maybe like a, a second little side cool thing, Brian. I've switched from my typical Mexican Coca Cola, which is my beloved and will always be my one true love. But for the everyday like caffeine itch scratching, I switched over to Poppies. Have you heard of Poppy? P O P P I. I have only because I've seen it in your fridge, but I still haven't tried it. Yeah. They've got a bunch of different flavors. And, you know, usually when you try like off brand, like the cola, it's like cola flavor. Like, okay, nice. Mr. Try. Pib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Dude, there's one called Doc Pop. It's so fucking good. It's it's not Dr. Pepper, but it's like better than most Dr. Pepper wannabes. But it's a prebiotic soda, so it's got some gut health stuff. How much sugar is in it? Um, I think like seven grams or something like that. Is that a lot? Okay. So it's better than a normal it's soda. 25 calories. Um, it's like oh, okay. very few That's... calories, right? Um, sure. Okay. But the flavor is full. It doesn't taste like a LaCroix or something where it's just like really watered down. Like it tastes like an actual soda. It's carbonated. It's good. Like and and, and they're sweet. So I got a sweet tooth brand, but there's orange, cola, root beer, doc pop. Uh oh, cherry limeade, which tastes an awful lot like Mountain Dew Code Red to my tongue. Mm. Grape. Mm-hmm. And uh there's probably another that I'm forgetting, but yeah, they're excellent. So the, I've I've switched up my beverage intake lately. I'm I'm drinking that UV water and I'm drinking that poppy, Brian. Anyways, those are my cool things. Okay, I think the UV water's overkill, uh-huh. but I'm down with a good thermos. It is a great thermos. And then on the soda front, good for you for. I'm just all about like trying to reduce sugar because I am addicted to sugar. I got a sweet tooth. I have mm-hmm. no portion control when it comes to to sugary stuff. Mm-hmm. Same, same. Um, but I stopped drinking sodas. Uh, I think I'm getting close to a year. I don't really know when I started, but haven't had a sugary soda in, in a long time. Nice. And I really have gotten restrained and just not buying stuff because if I have it at home, I eat it. Yeah, that's the easiest way to not eat something is to not have just it. Just don't buy it. <laughs> just don't buy it. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Uh, my cool thing is... I do this a lot where like I'll do a cool thing for a show that I'm halfway through. So I don't, I don't know that I fully endorse the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, but I started watching Foundation on Apple TV. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's like deep sci-fi. It's oh, like, it's, yeah, it's hard sci-fi. It's Asimov there's sci-fi. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Lore for and real worlds and like yeah, yeah, yeah. lots of shit. And I'm sure the book is 10 times as more intense than the, the TV show. Mm-hmm. I found so I started and stopped it a couple of times and I like couldn't get into it and then I saw people talking about how amazing season two is you should really watch it I'm like all right I'll I'll try it again and I found that when I got like kind of like pushed through episode two and three and then I I was in like episode one was fun two and three were like a little bit of a lull mm-hmm. and now I've like swooped back around I think I'm on like six or seven of season one so I've, sw- I've swooped around and I'm really enjoying it now so i guess that's my cool thing we'll see how it goes i've heard season two is awesome but i like i like a a real sci-fi thing that you can get into and Mm -hmm. like i I don't know kind of like game of thrones where game of thrones was like deep fantasy and you like have to memorize 50 characters names and like understand the factions and allegiances and the history (laughs) and the geography and all that kind of shit Uh kind of the same thing here like you're starting to memorize like oh, that planet is there and like that race is from that planet and that race doesn't like this other race. Mm-hmm. When you get to that point, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm getting in deep, which is kind of when TV shows become fun, but it takes a little bit of a curve to get into it. Yeah. No, yeah. It's it's funny that you say you got through the lull curve because that's where I got stuck. I think if I check my up next and scroll way to the right on my Apple TV, uh, I'm probably like a third of the way through episode two, season one, episode two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Push th- push through and get to like episode four and like see how it feels. Yeah. But no, I, I got stuck on episode two two or three times well here's my thing i wasn't even sure that season two was going to get greenlit so now that season two is out i have a bigger drive to actually watch season one because half of the shit like these these streaming services you get a season one and that's it so i didn't want to get invested just to find out that it was going to get canceled but 
Uh, and the stuff that I did watch, one thing that I love. You, you realize the irony in that statement. What? <laughs> if you don't watch it because you're afraid they won't make a season two, uh-huh. and if more people are like you, uh-huh. then people won't watch it. Therefore, they will not make season two. <laughs> I'm not the target. I'm a late watcher. I'm a binger anyways. So if they're okay. going to do anything okay. like, but yeah, I see your point. Anyway, anyways. One thing I did like about, this isn't giving anything away. Uh, There's a King character who's actually three clones of himself named Dawn, Day, and Dusk. Is that right? Yeah. They're all clones, but they call themselves brothers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, And together they rule. So there's a child being tutored by the main guy who's in the prime of his life. And then there's an older version of him who's kind of been the prime guy and the kid. But now he's like older and wiser and can, you know, so it's like, the same king is constantly ruling, or at least genetically. And philosophically, he's passing down his own way of ruling to himself from generation to generation, like he's going to rule forever. But I think it's a really interesting idea of that dawn, day, dusk, one from the alliteration yeah. standpoint and single syllable, but also like as a concept. That's really fucking cool. It's cool. Yeah. There's lots of little moments like that as you start to explore the other worlds, too. It's cool. Mm. Well, as we've said many times, cool thing. Cool, cool thing. Well, this has been episode 463 of the Design Details podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you thought. We're on Twitter, as always, at Design Details FM. If you want to hear more, head over to patreon.com slash design details, where you can subscribe to get the sidebar, sidebar, which is bonus content. Sidebar, sidebar. uh, For just a buck a month. Just a buck. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll catch you in the next one. Bye. I uh I never got into the the PSL lifestyle. It's dude, I I was never like I knew people shat on it. I just didn't have an opinion until I tried it and then I I'm a full on believer, man. Like it's amazing. You're a, you're a pumpkin spice boy. Yeah, okay. <laughs>